So today is the half moon day, observance day. There's 10 days left till the end of this month. This winter retreat I have heard ends on the 31st of March. So these are perceptions in the present moment, the end of the retreat. And ask yourself right now, what is the end of the retreat as a reality in the present moment? And you realize it's a perception. You imagine it. So you're seeing things as they really are rather than believing that you've got to get ready for the end of the retreat. After the retreat, you're planning to go here or do this or... You start thinking of your duties, responsibilities, uh, in the monastery and life and COVID-19 vaccine shots and all possibilities in the future. But all possibilities in the future are right now, at this very moment, images in the mind, their perceptions. So you keep reflecting like this rather than living your life for the future. You know, most people who don't reflect on the way things are, planning always for the future, remembering the past, the present moment is just something you, you acknowledge. It, you know, what time is it exactly right now at this moment? You look, look at a clock. So your, your whole conditioned sense of a separate self is time-bound. The sense of yourself as a separate person is an imagination. It's not a real person. So what you, that's why I keep saying, reminding you, what you believe and think you are, that's what you're not. Because there's only the present moment, here and now. Reality is here and now. Dhamma is here and now. And you imagine getting, waking to reality in the future. That's an image that you create now. So that's why I encourage you to observe this, really seeing things as they are rather than what you're told to believe in or what your actual tendencies are to believe, your mind, your, your, your views and opinions, your conceptions. So, you know, it's really interesting that, that uh, you know, when I've mentioned many times the, when we chant the Santitiko Dhamma Kalika Ei Pachka Upanayako Bhajatang Vaitidapo, how mechanical that can be, chanting in Pali, translating it into English, and... Uh, and yet how profound that is a statement of reality. So what is Dhamma right now in terms of 
what you believe Dhamma is. You know, you have, you know, most of us were not born into Buddhist families. So it's a, it's a foreign term coming into our consciousness. But the same thing applies to Thais or Sri Lankans or those born in, into Buddhist families, Buddhist countries. What does it do right now when you, when you try to define Dhamma, apparent, translated as apparent here and now, Santitiko? So Dhamma is here and now. It's not something you're going to get in the future. What is, what is it here and now that, that is a fact, not a memory, not an opinion, not a, uh, an object of consciousness? It's consciousness itself. And then that's a fact. You're, you know you're conscious, but you believe that consciousness is inside your brain or inside your body. So we separate, we think, Ajahn Sumedho's consciousness is confined to his body. Ajahn Sundra's consciousness confined to her body. Ajahn Chandrasiri's consciousness is not the same as mine. This is all imagination, isn't it? You imagine, you create Lung Pao Sumedho, Ajahn Sundra, Ajahn Chandrasiri with memories, with views, opinions, thoughts. But what is unitive here and now is consciousness, because it's, it's one perfect whole. It's not somebody's personal, it doesn't have any personal qualities. It doesn't separate things, where what does separate things right now in terms of the sense of an ego, a cultural conditioning, is the memories, the thoughts, the conditions, the feelings, because we're all maybe feeling differently at this time. What emotionally each individual is feeling is, is, seems very personal because it's not going to be the same going from one person to another. But what is the same? What is unitive, what is perfect, is consciousness. And everybody is conscious. And it's not personal. So this, when you reflect in this way, you begin to change your assumptions, like the, the worldly assumptions, the materialist conditioning that we have very much so in modern life, in modern societies, is based on uh, the importance of a separate self. How important, how self-important one is here. Or maybe you don't feel important because you, you see yourself in very negative terms. When looking at various programs on YouTube, you know, there's so many, so many, so much available to emphasize, the, to develop the self, to have a better sense of self and self-respect. And so, uh, you know, so it's, it's an obsession this period of time, this time in, in the history of humanity, the self, the separate self is what everybody believes in. Self-importance. What I think, my rights, my views, my opinions. So like human rights and individual rights and, and these are certainly ideas, ideals, not to be despised. 
but is that going to be liberating when everything is when human rights becomes everybody's a complete self-satisfied individual separate self is that the answer to suffering or is that just magnifying suffering because the condition realm is is not perfect you know so you know you can't create perfection with conditions with earth fire water and air the four elements they are form elements time elements And when you reflect on it, you see it's impossible. I'm not just being negative or trying to, to say there's something wrong with the four elements because they can be right or wrong, or good or bad, high or low. They, can, they all have qualities, like the mood you're in right now, the state of mind, each individual person in this temple is experiencing right now is has a quality to it it's a condition and you're aware of its condition you know what you're feeling right now it's like this if i ask each one of you to describe it then you're going to get caught up into trying to find the right English equivalents for your feeling. And that's more imagination. You're just trying to think and describe exactly the mood, the state of mind you're in at this moment. You find words like peaceful or my mind wanders or I'm confused or... I have been doubts, or I'm happy, or I'm unhappy. These words, words are very limited to describe feeling, aren't they? Feeling isn't intellectual, you know, it's not from, from the, the, the thoughts, from the words, from concepts. It's a condition, the mind that changes states of mind that arise and cease according to other conditions. So you might feel one way while you're sitting here and you go out the door and you feel another way and somebody says hello and you feel something else and then somebody snubs you and you feel upset or somebody makes demands that you you, you don't like to hear, you feel like this, somebody praises you, you feel this way, your mood, your, your, your feelings will change. You can't help how you feel, you know, you can't decide you're just going to be happy forever, and that can actually happen. So it's learning to trust this ability, you know, when I say trust your ability to reflect, to know, because you know this moment is like this. Nobody's going to argue that point with me. Everybody here, they use these are words, but they're not descriptions, personal descriptions of the way it is. So it's, it's like inviting you to open up and just observe, be the witness, the puto observing the Dhamma. And whatever you're feeling in this moment is the way it is. You know, did you choose it, deliberately 
create a mood of this that you're experiencing now or does it just happen because of the conditions you know the conditions are like this inside of the temple listening to dhamma reflections like this whether you understand what i'm saying is like like this or you don't understand it's just confusing it's like this I'm not asking you to believe or understand what I'm saying, but to it's like an encouragement to trust your awareness. So that's encouraging you. It's not a demand. You know, I can't demand it. You know, it's up to you whether you, you trust awareness but you've got to know what it is because mindfulness teachings are very available and all kinds of teachers talk about mindfulness and we think of it in a certain way like concentration <clears throat> so like i remember as a when i before i ordained i was living at a temple in bangkok and one of the monks there, an English monk, was always telling me to be mindful. So he says, be mindful, mindfulness, mindfulness, and always pushing this word mindfulness. So he took me to a residence hall in the monastery where he had to, it was on the second floor. And on the way up, he tripped on the steps. <laughs> and I felt certain kind of glee. I couldn't help but think mindfulness because we think that tripping on the steps is a lack of mindfulness. If you think you have got to be mindful on that level of just concentrating on what your body is doing, but mindfulness doesn't mean you don't trip on the step, it means you're aware that Tripping on a step is like this. So in, you know, developing this kind of, it's a constant ability to do it, no matter what you're doing, whether you're working in the kitchen or in your privacy of your room or your gardening or whatever. The thing with, you know, on a re silent retreat, that's a, one of the advantages of the Amaravati Winter's Retreat is, is that, you know, we're not socializing we're, because so much of escape from the present moment is to socialize, to talk, and that's habitual. <clears throat> because talking, you know, it, is what we like to do when we don't have anybody to talk to. We, things come up in consciousness, negative memories, loneliness. One becomes obsessed with various uh, thoughts that arise. And then we have this idea, you've got to get rid of them to get samadhi get concentration you've got to get rid of the wandering mind that you're somebody who can't meditate because your mind wanders you don't know how many times I've heard that over the years people saying I can't meditate my mind won't stay still 
I sit down and my mind just goes crazy. What is that? That those are all words and views about yourself. This sense of the, this this wandering mind, these wandering memories, is is very personal. And we believe it. We think meditation is going into silence, samadhi, peace, tranquility, bliss, all these words. But the present moment here and now, and that's all there ever is and ever will be, is here and now. That's where what we experience, what we're experiencing now is consciousness. It's not something you'll find. It's something, it's what you are. And if you're trying to find yourself, find who you are, where do you belong, where do you fit in, you know, you might find temporary satisfaction in various things or conditions, but they change. But you can know that you, th you believe you, you've got to find yourself is a, is a whole way of thinking. Because doubt, you know, who, who, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? Is, it creates doubt. You know, it creates emptiness. Because when you doubt, when when you start doubting, that means, you know, you're, 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 with doubt, if you use it, like in Zen traditions and so forth, they use, deliberately use doubt. The Diamond Sutra is all about doubting. The Heart Sutra, can you, have you ever read the Heart Sutra? And Mahayana Buddhism, it absolutely makes no sense on the logical, intellectual, reasonable level. In the Nibbana Sutta, the first stanza of the Nibbana Sutta is just the same as the Heart Sutta in Mahayana. And when you first read it, you know, it makes you doubt. You don't know what, it's, what it means because your whole thinking process is based on logic and reason, on a separate self, reasoning, being logical, being sensible, making sense, on the intellectual of giving the right names, the right definitions. <clears throat> and if you don't know the right names for things you ask, uh, you go to scriptures or teachers or somebody else to find out. But what you really are, we're all the same, we're consciousness. These forms are in consciousness. These bodies sitting here in this temple, they're in a, they're in a temple, and the temple is in consciousness. So it's not, consciousness is not confined to your brain or your heart or uh, to the physical form of, every, uh, of people's bodies. It doesn't have any form. It's formless. You can't find it as an object. But you can know you're conscious, and that's a, a fact that you can't deny at this moment. Now that awakening to that reality, to reality itself, When you think about it, you know, when you think about Dhamma and Buddhist teachings and, and you read different philosophers, different religious traditions and so forth, you know, it's, 
it's all words, whatever religion, whatever philosophy it might be. Words can't take you, can't, you know, can't convey the reality of here and now. Because they're sankaras, they're conditions. They're limited. So do you need to define Dhamma? Uh, you know, have it, what is, what is Lung Pao Sumato say Dhamma is? And you going to believe that? Or you ask somebody else and they say something different, are you going to believe them or doubt them? But whatever I say, you know, has an effect here and now. And the unitive perfection of this moment isn't in what you believe or doubt or understand, but in conscious awareness. Now, I've talked many times about practice of deliberate, intentional thinking. And I'm sure you understand what I'm saying. But it's, it's still directions, words given to you by, by me, separate forms. And it's not something that is not understandable. You can certainly intentionally think anything you want at this moment. But to realize the space between the words Now that's we're not used to recognizing. You know, language is, is structured, you know, with grammar. So we, we have grammatical patterns, and one word leads to another. There's a verb, uh, I mean, there's a noun, a personal pronoun, a verb, another noun, or a pronoun, or a adverb, adjective. To say, I am happy. But then, before you even start thinking I, and intentional thinking, you know you're not really interested in, in the meaning of the words. You know the meaning already. So the meaning doesn't really, is not our, you know, you're not paying attention to the meaning of the words. It's more or less a a, a, a sense that, that you you deliberately think to examine the emptiness, conscious awareness before the actual pronoun I, the space between I and am, the space between am and happy, and the ending of happy, you begin, you know, if you keep examining that space, that emptiness, you know, so you're, you know, it's not trying to believe in this, it's a very simple practical method to, to recognize the reality of conscious awareness without words, without thoughts interfering without being attached to the words or the feelings or the meaning of the words that you're thinking, but noticing the gaps between, the space between the words.
And so silence, when they talk about silence, awakening to a silent consciousness that isn't thinking is like this. And you can think anything. You know, the most conceited thought I'm the best person in the whole world or I'm absolutely hopeless case. It can be self-disparaging or self-aggrandizing. Doesn't matter what the words are about the pronouns you use, whether it's about yourself or somebody else. So we carry memories and, you know, like asking, for those of us whose parents have passed away years ago, I think I like to ask, where is my mother now? She died in 1989. And that's words, isn't it? Thinking about my mother brings up a certain feeling. But the space between my and mother, where is my mother now, is what you interested in. So that, that can bring up emotions, strong feelings and memories. But I am happy or I'm not happy, it's, it doesn't matter what kind of words you choose, as long as, you, because you're not interested in the words or the feelings they arouse. So at first, I, I, my advice is to choose words that don't arouse emotions. Later on, as you have more confidence in the space, in the silence, underlying your thoughts, underlying your moods, underlying everything. These bodies are in consciousness. The space in this temple is in consciousness. The space outside the temple is in consciousness. Space is, has no quality other than spaciousness. But these forms can't exist without space. Try to imagine no space and imagine yourself in, in, a, in a no space situation. You can't do it. So space, earth, fire, water, and air are in consciousness. So pointing this out, just logically speaking, it makes sense. Where in the materialist world, consciousness came out of material. Or it was created by God. And consciousness is, is, is inside the, the each individual human form. And, and then there have been arguments whether dogs and cats are conscious. But dogs and cats are in space. Space is in consciousness. You can't get beyond consciousness. You can create things into this present moment, your thoughts, your feelings, your views and opinions. And that's what we do. That's what materialism is, what the world is all about. It's a creation that we, that we create with thoughts, with memories, with conditioning.
So in this in this encouraging scene, ever you know the space, earth, fire, water elements. They're the time elements. Your body is a time element. That's why it ages, you know, you can't sustain youth. You know, they're native, the, the bodies are meant to be born, grow up, get old and die. And then we identify with that, with a, with a condition that is imperfect. And then how can we not feel threatened by death or doubt or what we appear, whether we're attractive or not, or white or black or male or female. These are all conditions that are unsatisfying. So that's why we suffer, because, you know, we are, we are attached to things that, are, that can't really satisfy us. We can't be content with the material world, no matter how pleasant and comfortable it might be for us. So it's kind of a relief to see your pursuits to find happiness and comfort and success, respect, and all the best you can think of and the, through the forms of earth, fire, water, air, and space, with all good intentions, will end up failing you because that's, you know, you're grasping imperfection when your true nature is already perfect. So it's awakening to this perfection of conscious awareness here and now and learning to trust it. It's silent, it's not, it doesn't say anything, it has no words. Words come through conditioning. Words are about sankharas, conditions, about phenomena, So condition, the only, you know, the, the valid use of conditioning is to investigate the limitation of conditioning. All the Pesankarani all conditions are impermanent. So these two sentences that I've repeated over the years, all conditions are impermanent. That's a profound statement. When you, when, not just to believe it because Buddha said so, but the Buddha didn't intend us to just believe. He gave this practice of investigating, finding out, are there any permanent conditions? We say, no, there are no permanent conditions because the Buddha said they're all impermanent. So I believe that. That's not investigating, that's believing. But why would the Buddha make such a statement so important? So in the Anatalakana Sutta, that we chant sometimes, it's all about impermanence. Everything is impermanent. But we chant it, we believe it, or we use that scripture in order to remind ourselves that even the most subtle condition is impermanent. So a condition is something that arises and ceases, begins and ends. In Pali, 
Buddhism, of course, it's called sankharas. You can word, use the word phenomena, phenomenon, condition, the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. So what is the space between the conditions is the unborn, uncreated, unformed. You don't create silence or stillness or the space between words. You create the words. You think the words, but when you, but the space between the words, the gap. Mind the gap, as the London Underground reminds us. Now, this is just sharing what, how I've learned, how I've become so confident in this practice, because I really investigated it. I was, you know, I was so obsessed with thoughts. I'd read so many books on Buddhism, suttas, corresponded with the Pali Society and Kandy. the World Fellowship of Buddhists in Bangkok. And when I finished my contract with the Peace Corps in Malaysia, I went to Thailand to practice, to find a teacher. Because even though I was inspired by the teachings, I still suffered all the time not because of any real external problems in the situation I was in, but because of the way I thought, full of doubt, fear, a lot of fear. But when you awaken to Dhamma, then you realize there's nothing to fear. On the level of Sankars, there's always a lot to fear. You know, so that's why when we identify with Sankaras, with, with the body, with the thoughts, the, the emotional habits we have, you know, there's, there's, it's habitual. It's a, it's, it's, it's a kind of condition into us to think, to believe. Because the society and parents that brought us up believed in it, in, in that that we're, you know, our reality is is the forms, the bodies that we have. The society believes that. So this is, science believes that to this day. Are you going to believe science or what the society tells you is right and wrong or true or false? Or can you trust your awareness to investigate? And this is the, this is the encouragement not telling you whether you're right or wrong, good or bad, because, you know, I found out years ago by giving people advice about whether they're good meditators or not, or, you know, wasn't helpful. By mentioning everybody's faults, by telling you what's wrong with you, you know, was a matter of opinion. It didn't seem to help because the problem is lack of trust in awareness and consciousness.
Now this teaching is is uh, pretty old, you know, 2,564 years old. But it's it's natural teaching. It's not like a discovery by somebody called the Buddha 2,564 years ago. This is this is memory, thoughts, views, opinions. But it's 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 reality itself, you know, it's awakened to reality, to Dhamma. And then you, you, you have the, you, you see it is stable, trustworthy. No matter what you're going through on an emotional, physical level at any moment. Now, when you at first listening to silence, you're not accustomed to it, you know, emotionally, personally, culturally, you're not conditioned to, for that. So it doesn't seem like anything, so you tend to ignore it. I remember years ago giving retreat here at Amravati, and a woman I knew um, was fascinated by sound of silence, so she kept looking for a sound. She came on a 10-day retreat determined to find the sound of silence. So I'd watch her on this retreat, and she was desperately, desperately trying to find something. Desperately trying to listen to some kind of imagined sound of silence. And at the end of the retreat, she gave up trying and she began to notice silence. So try and just notice the tendencies we have to try to get something. We've got to get samadhi. We've got to get concentration. In Thailand, for example, they, they emphasize so much concentration. But in Wat Pong, when I first went there, you know, Lung Po Cha was aware that, you know, was aware, you know, as the first Western disciple in a very remote monastery in northeast Thailand. And he didn't know any Westerners or foreigners before I came. But he was aware that, that just trying to get samadhi in the situation I was in was futile because I just tried to suppress everything. And I find all attempts at trying to get samadhi you know, trying to become a control freak. I get upset with people for making a noise, with birds chirping, with dogs barking. Remember Nana Chat, when we first established Wat Ba Nana Chat in Thailand, you know, the radios were, were becoming popular in the village of Bung Wai, Ban Bung Wai, run by batteries. And and the fields around surrounding Wat Banachat, the rice fields, the farmers would have these radios hanging on the horns of their water buffaloes 
plowing the fields playing popular songs, Thai songs. And it made me angry. Because I didn't want to hear Thai pop music while I was meditating. And just by reflecting on that, I don't want this. I don't like this. The farmers should respect my, my, my meditation practice. It's all about me. Me getting something I don't have. Me trying to control life around me so I can get some peace. About me and my practice. My practice is so important. I want everybody to shut up so I can practice. I want the world to stop annoying me so I can get my samadhi. <laughs> so why not start out with wisdom, which is learning to trust awareness. So, you know, the Four Noble Truths, to me, that's, that's the, the heart of it all, because it, it's not about belief. Buddha is not asking us to believe that suffering is a noble truth, but to reflect on suffering, to awaken to suffering. Why do we suffer? What are the causes? What is the end of suffering? This is investigating, finding out for yourself, not just believing in the Four Noble Truths, but putting them, using them for directions, because we get lost in our own doubts, self-doubts, fears. But you're aware, you know, you know when you're caught up in fear or anxiety or worry or self-criticism. You know you're, when you're angry, when you're greedy. There's this, always this, this knowing of things. It's like this. Then you think a good monk, a good nun shouldn't be greedy. You know, the ideal of a samana of an alms mendicant is, you know, that's a direction, not a position you can take personally. So it's not to develop a sense of you as a person, to increase that, that sense of me and mine. So in the, you know, the Vinaya is all about conditioning. All the rules are sankaras, about action and speech. So that is a conforming to, to you know, in, in form, joining the Sangha as a Samana, as a monastic. It's conforming to, to this traditional form. Not for personal reasons, not for, you know, to become something like a monk or a nun, an anagarika, you know, trying to, to become something, but to use the form for awareness. Because the form allows us to live in a certain way that is, you know, has merit. Right action, right speech, right livelihood. But not to take it personally to see whether, you know, to see whether I'm, 
you know, my speech is perfect or my actions are absolutely flawless to try to, you know, overstate the identity with the rules, but to use the rules to observe thoughts, emotions, mental states that arise in regards to restraint, physical restraint, emotional, you know, not speaking on emotional uh, feelings. So anger arises. You're aware you're anger, there's anger. But you refrain from speaking. That's, that can be seen as repression, or is it wisdom? Just to blurt out everything that goes through your mind. All your thoughts and feelings of the moment. That just creates disharmony, you know, if we were all just expressing our personal feelings all towards each other all the time, we couldn't live together. It'd be too much, overwhelming. But the form itself isn't meant to be attached to as an identity, but a skillful means. Because for happiness in the world, too, it's to do good, refrain from doing bad. That's logic. Kusla Dhamma, Kusla Dhamma. To do good, receive good. To do bad, receive bad result. Law of karma. Because conditions, phenomena, sankars are all karma. The law of karma is about birth and death beginning and ending. What is born dies, that's all karmic. Well, we use this word karma. So condition, when you identify with conditions, you're identifying with karma. And they're all, you know, the karma is not going to be always what you, you know, imagine what you want. Who wants to get sick? Who wants to get old and die? You know, so if we identify with the body, with the karmic form, such as your physical form, you know, that's suffering. Because that's not what you are. So find out what you really are, and it's impersonal, anatta, non-self. And on the intellectual level, that, you can't imagine non-self. Like you're nobody. If you're not the body, you're not the person, the personality, you're not your thoughts, you're not your memories, you're not your social position. It's like being nobody. But then as you tune into being nobody, silence, the spaces, the gaps between words, thoughts, emotionally you can feel disappointed because it doesn't seem like anything, like you want to become enlightened, and that sounds like something really wonderful to become enlightened and you're absolutely free and perfect as an individual, happy forever, blessing the world with loving-kindness is all very, you know, created thoughts, or good thoughts. But if that's what you're expecting, you're going to be disappointed. So recognize that, that here and now is not something to, to expect, but to awaken to, to realize something you don't have to find it, because you are consciously aware at this moment. Every one of you is. 
I remember years ago before I ordained here in the, somebody quoted us saying that there's a path, but there's nobody on the path. And I thought, that's depressing. You know, there's a path, but nobody's on it. Because I still <laughs> thinking about it. Are there, you know, like Ajahn Chai, isn't he on the path? Or I believe Lung Pu Man was on the path. He, he finished the path. I believe Lung Pu Man was an Arahant. But when you realize you're not a body, no body. The body is non-self. You're not a person. Sakya Ditti Silabata Bharamasa, the first two fetters. Personality view, cultural social conditioning. Wichikicha, the third one. which means doubt, which is always a result of thinking, holding on to thoughts, to opinions and views. You know, so these are the three fetters or obstructions, bondages that, that are very much created, artificial creations that we're conditioned with when we're born. And we can be aware of them as objects of, in conscious awareness. You can observe the ego, the sense of your separate self. So when we use the word ego, it means like Sakya Ditti, this I am this body, this person, this physical form. When we talk about egotistical, means quite selfish, self-centered, or overestimating oneself. It's still words and thoughts, perceptions. But in terms of psychedelia, it's much more broad meaning, meaning the, the identity, the conditioned identity we have about who we are as a physical form. Sila Bhattabharamasa. It's conventions. Holding, believing in conventions, being a slave to conventions. Being limited always by the conventional forms. Believing that the conventions are right and wrong and and getting caught up in the cultural conditioning, social conditioning, religious conditioning. And then, which he keeps a doubt from grasping thoughts, opinions, and views. I always take you to never being quite sure, doubting. So intuitive awareness or mindfulness isn't intellectual. It's aware of the intellect. It's not judging it, saying we've got to get rid of our intellect or social, cultural, religious conditioning. It's not about getting rid of anything, but understanding that attachment is bondage to conditions that are inevitably unsatisfying. So in this retreat, we've got 10 more days of perfect silence, perfect conditions for samadhi, getting to Nibbana, or however you might think, or, you know, you've got to make the most of it. Just observe what you think. How you react to the to the views 
about the end of winter's retreat, what you've got to do, what you want to do. It's like this. I'm not saying you should stop thinking about it, but trust yourself to be aware it is thoughts arising and ceasing in the present. And liberation is here and now, not in the future. So I offer this as a reflection. <laughs>